The Bible begins in a garden and it ends in an even greater garden. The in-between is what we all experience right now. Man is in exile. The question that every human being has is how do I make it to this greater garden, this paradise, to heaven? Is eternal life possible? And regardless of one's belief system, everyone craves a greater paradise. And so today, can that thirst be quenched? And that's what we are going to be looking at as we continue our series through 1 John that you might know. So turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5 or you can look on your worship guide. And we are going to be reading 1 John 5, verses 6 through 12. This is the inspired, inerrant word of God. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If you receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, and this life is in the son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. May God bless the reading of his word. In this passage, we see that we have assurance of eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ. And there are three things that you must do to have confidence in this assurance that he provides. Focus on Christ, believe God's testimony, and trust in God's promise. Focus, believe, and trust. The first thing is to, we have assurance, we have confidence in this assurance, we must focus on Christ. In John's day, there was a heretical movement known as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis. It means knowledge. And they believed they had this secret knowledge about a great variety of things. And so they, some of them believed that matter was evil. Well, they all believed matter was evil. Flesh was evil. Spirit was the only good or pure thing. So they rejected Christ appearing or coming in the flesh and said he only appeared. One Gnostic teacher known as Serenthus a contemporary of John, he taught that the divine Christ spirit came upon Christ Jesus the man at his baptism. And then before he was crucified, the Christ left Jesus the man. And where did he get these things? Where did he get these claims? And how do we know if these claims are true or false? Well, John says that the spirit testifies to the truth of who Jesus is. Look at verse six. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one that testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. And so the first thing John says is Jesus came by water and the blood. What does that mean? 
Water and blood in scripture has a very deep significance, deep scriptural significance. And so there are actually many views about what John says here. Some think that this points to Jesus' natural childbirth through water and blood. And some think that it points to the sacraments, baptism and Lord's Supper. Others say that this is a reference to cleansing and sanctification. And I actually wouldn't say any of these completely miss because they're all pointing to who Christ is and what he accomplished. But I think there are two main views that really give the best explanation for what John means here. The first view is the view of most theologians, and they believe that the water and the blood are Jesus's, refer to Jesus' baptism through the water and his sacrifice, or his crucifixion through the blood. In coming through the waters of baptism, Jesus was identifying with the sinners he came to save. John the Baptist declared, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And so John the the Baptist was a, a prophet and his testimony was very important. But the emphasis of our text today is specifically on the testimony of God concerning the Son. And so what we see in the baptism is that the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove, and the father bore testimony, this is my son, this is my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. And so you see, this was more than a baptism where Jesus simply identifies with sinners, which is what we often think. The Holy Spirit falling on Jesus like a dove was an anointing. He was being anointed for what? For his ministry and fulfillment of the threefold offices as prophet, priest, and king. And so God's testimony is that is the one, that is the Messiah, my son. And he is the one, God himself, who is anointing Jesus. And so in the old covenant, kings were anointed and they had oil poured on them, which was symbolic of the the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit rested on God's anointed. And so you see Samuel anoints King Saul and Samuel anoints and pours oil over David's head. And this simply showed that this is Yahweh's anointed, his chosen. And so Jews in the Old Testament, or Jews, they had this belief that whoever the anointed king was, was considered God's adopted son, the beloved. And so the Holy Spirit descends upon Christ and the Father affirms publicly that this is the Messiah, my beloved. Likewise, the Old Testament priests, they were ritually cleansed at the age of 30. And Jesus said his baptism was 30 years of age. And priests were anointed with oil. They were set apart for service as mediators between God and his people. And they were responsible for guarding and carrying out the sacrificial system at the temple. And the Westminster Confession, which is our confession of faith, it says, or it teaches us, that Jesus ultimately fulfills the office of priest in his once offering up of himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, to reconcile us to God, and to make continual intercession for us. You see, Christ came by the water to cleanse and the blood to atone for our sins. And he is, and he does this as our high priest. And lastly, the spirit of the Lord would come upon the prophets in the Old Testament. They were anointed to proclaim the word of God. And when Jesus began his ministry, after his baptism in Luke chapter four, he goes to the synagogue 
and he opens up the scroll to the place of Isaiah, which says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Again, our Westminster Confession teaches us that Christ our prophet reveals his word to us, reveals to us by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. And so this view that Jesus came by rudder and blood refers to his baptism and to the crucifixion. It really does well because it highlights the person and work of Christ and the testimony of the Father and the Holy Spirit. And it also helps to explain something that John might have been addressing with Serenthus, that the Christ only descended upon the man Jesus and then left at the crucifixion. So this does seem to explain the text, but I'm not completely convinced that this is exactly what John had in mind. And so I'll give you the second view. The second view focuses on how Jesus came in the flesh, the incarnation, the eternal son of God becoming human flesh. This is the point that John keeps making again and again. Jesus came in the flesh, 1 John 4, 2. Jesus came in the flesh, 2 John, verse seven. So the incarnation was so central to John's thinking. And if you think about it, think back to how he begins his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John was fascinated with the incarnation. And actually, you can turn back to chapter one in our study of 1 John. 1 John chapter one. Verses one and two say this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The word of life, eternal life, clothed in the flesh. We saw it, we heard it, we touched it. This is something that John is really emphasizing to us. And also, John, this reference to water and blood could be a looking back to something John witnessed. When the God-man is dying on the cross, he says, it is finished. And after Jesus cried this, he died. And John chapter 19 tells us that the soldiers came to Jesus and they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And out at once there came out blood and water. He who saw this has borne testimony to it, that it is true that you might believe. So this scene fascinates John, which is why I said that Rock of Ages there was basically my sermon. Because Top Lady makes a wonderful, the guy who wrote the hymn, Rock of Ages, he, he makes a wonderful connection. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. 
save from wrath and make me pure. The blood and the water truly are a double cure to save us from the wrath of God's judgment and to cleanse us and purify us. John Calvin interpreted the water and the blood to explain the concept of cleansing and the life-giving effects of Jesus' death. When the water and the blood flowed out, this blood and water was a kind of testimony, the same as God at Jesus' baptism. And so when you look at the Old Testament, we always mention how the Old Testament points us to Christ. It was all about Christ. The Old Testament tabernacle, there is a deep redemptive symbolism in water and blood. There was a bronze laver where the priests kept water so that they could wash their hands before they offered a sacrifice. They'd wash their hands and feet and to the Jewish mind, water is a picture of cleansing. And then that someone, if someone entered through the court gate of the tabernacle, the first thing they would see is a bronze altar where the blood was where the sacrifices were made, shed for one's sins. You could not approach a holy God without a blood sacrifice. And so the, the only reason that we have access to a holy God today, the only reason that God forgives us at all is only because of the shed blood of Christ. And for this to happen, God had to become man. This is one of the most profound truths in the Christian faith, the incarnation. There was a medieval theologian named Anselm, and he wrote a book, Why God Became Man. And in this book, he explains that the savior of the world had to be God because mankind's offense was against God. And the savior also had to be man because man is the one who committed the offense. So we need one to save us in our humanity, but we also needed more than one to save us because a perfect human savior, Anselm argued, at best could only save to a one-to-one ratio. Once a human savior dies, the exchange is over. So humanity needed a savior who is righteous before God and is also transcendent or divine in order to save a multitude of humans. The necessity of God coming in the flesh, the incarnation is essential to salvation. And then if you look back in 1 John 5, verse six, John says, not by water only, but by water and the blood. So because of this clarification, I think that this cancels out the idea that he is speaking specifically to Jesus' natural childbirth through a woman, through water and blood of childbirth. Rather, it is speaking, John is speaking of the nature of the incarnation, the eternal divine nature, the word, the water, and Jesus' human nature, the blood. And John is probably speaking against the heresy that of Gnosticism was, was putting a wedge between the man Jesus and the eternal son of God, Jesus. So as I said, Gnostics viewed matter as evil, spirit as good. They had a, they had a really big problem with the incarnation. And so they taught that Christ came by spirit and not flesh, and spirit symbolizes water. For, for example, in John chapter 4, Jesus talks about living water given to the Samaritan woman. And then in John chapter 7, Jesus references the living water which will flow out of one's heart when they're born again. And he was speaking of the Spirit of God. So why is this important? Why is it that John is so adamant about who Christ truly is? 
It's because you can't be saved by a false Christ. You can't be saved by a water-only Christ, by a water-only gospel. John is opposing any teaching that downplays or sidesteps the need for the cross, that removes the fact that God's divine wrath is upon sinners, and therefore they must flee to the cross where the Lamb of God shed his blood and it flows down. You must understand who Christ truly is and what he did to cleanse you of your sins in order to give you eternal life and fellowship with God. So the application for us, to have assurance of eternal life, you must focus on Christ. And by that, focus on Christ and his work and not on ourself, our performance. When we focus on Christ, you'll understand that he paid this all for you to be forgiven. And for you to have peace with God and no condemnation. This is not just so you have assurance and feel good and at peace at night. What this is, is that you will have fellowship with God. Eternal life is a eternal fellowship with God beginning right now. So, the blood of Jesus, you always approach him on this basis. In your fellowship, in your day-to-day with God, interactions with God, prayer with God. You always approach him through the blood of Jesus. And the good news for us is that on good days and bad days, in good times or dry times, whether you've been obedient or you've failed and sinned, you approach him on the basis of the blood of Christ and his obedience. So because Christ was truly God and truly man, his life's blood is sufficient to forgive you, to reconcile you to God. And the question for you is, do you believe this? Are you assured of this? Are you certain of this, that Christ and his work give you eternal life? And also, do you have fellowship with the Father, with the assurance that your sin debt has been fully paid? This is gospel, good news for us. So to have assurance of eternal life, first of all, We must focus on Christ, the object of our faith. And secondly, believe God's testimony. The Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth, verse seven. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. The theme of witness and testimony in John's writings are very prominent. John writes that he himself is a witness to who Christ is. John the Baptist was called to be a witness. God the Father is called a witness who bears testimony. The Holy Spirit bears testimony. The scripture bears testimony. Jesus' miracles bear witness. John wrote again and again about this. And from the Old Testament, we understand that the witness of two to three was very important to prove something that was true in court. So you might wonder, why doesn't John just grab Peter and James and you know, a couple other guys, get three eyewitnesses? This, is, uh, this would prove what is true, but it's because he's making an even stronger point. It is because these three witnesses, the spirit, the water, and the blood, are God's testimony concerning his son. Verse nine, if you receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. So here John wants people to have certainty that the testimony of the spirit, water, and the blood are God's 
testimony himself. And we can accept human testimony as fact. And if we can do that as a source of truth, how much greater an all-knowing and righteous God. Now this is important in our day because how do you know what is truth? In our day, we swim in a relativistic culture. How do you know what is true? And many people are getting very confused about basic concepts of truth and, and reality. And this is because of the world's rejection of God. Rejection of God, the foundation of all truth and morality. And young people are hearing, your truth is your truth. All truth is relative. Follow your heart. Look within. In other words, just do what is right in your own eyes. And where does this get us? We have a lot of people in society who don't know simple facts about who they are. And I recently read an article that was that where a girl was being allowed to identify as a cat in school. The teachers were made to go along with it, and she didn't have to respond to any of their questions. And so it's sad. This is very sad and disturbing. People need truth. But what is this girl's reference point for what is true? If truth is subjective, if you find it within yourself, your own experience, who are you to say that she is actually wrong? And so what we have are people who are forced to operate with one another and be in relationship with two different realities. We have our feet planted in midair, so to speak. But the scriptures teach us that you cannot look within yourself to find what is true. Because the heart of man is wicked and deceptive above all things. Who can know it? Many people trust their own subjective feelings. And what is wrong with this? What's wrong with trusting in your own experience? You're fallen. We're sinners. We must look to God for truth. Well, then you might ask, what does John mean here? He actually says in verse 10 that truth is within. What does he mean by this? Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. What he's saying there is when we believe, we have the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God confirming to us what is true. Those who are born of God, born of the Spirit of God, it in, the Spirit of God indwells you and you have a new heart. You've been given a new heart. However, once your heart is changed, once you are a believer, do you just start trusting your own motives since you have a new heart? No, because we are a work in progress. And the Bible teaches us, trust not, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And therefore, we look to God for truth. He is outside of us. He is the external reference point for what is true. And so the Spirit of God will testify in your heart what is true. Next, John says, who does not believe, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Some people think you could be neutral about the gospel. John removes that neutrality or that option. He gives you two options. You hear it and receive it. You hear it and you reject it. It's one of the two. And if you reject the testimony of God, you're making him a liar. All the way back to the garden in Genesis 3, the devil questioned God's word. Has God really said, you will not die? And when he did that, he was 
testing God or he was accusing God of being a liar. He was questioning God's character. And so Eve was deceived by the serpent and she exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And in taking the fruit, that's such a small thing, a seemingly small thing. But she was calling God a liar. And so did Adam, all the way back to the garden. And then we see as history moves on, Romans 1 teaches us that those who reject what is clearly revealed in nature, God's plan and God's purpose, they, and when they refuse to worship God the creator, they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And so what happens to them when they reject God's truth? How serious is this? They, it says they're handed over to vile and unnatural passions, to things that are against nature. And we see this all throughout our society. And this is not a sign of coming judgment. It is a sign that there is judgment upon us. Judgment for what? For rejecting God's truth and exchanging it for a lie. And so this is a serious charge, rejecting God's truth, even if it seems that you do so in a small way. And so what John wants to make a point of is abundantly clear. To not believe in God's testimony concerning Jesus Christ is the height of rebellion. Have you rejected God's testimony through half-heartedness, through going through the motions? You pay lip service to God, but your heart is not in it. Have you rejected him in lukewarmness, in prayerlessness? You have no desire for true fellowship. You know deep down there's no true, genuine fellowship with God. And you don't know him and you don't desire him. And so God's word, his promise tells us that if we believe in it, if we believe in Christ, we will be called children of God. Have you received that or rejected that? Are you a true child of God? And if you aren't sure today, if you doubt, I'd like to reissue something that Chuck issued about several years ago, I can't remember. We call it Chuck's Challenge, 20 minutes a day. Spend 20 minutes a day going to God in prayer and the word, have fellowship with him. You go to the source daily. You drink from the fountain of life and truth and taste and see that the Lord is good. And if you believe in God's testimony, you have that privilege. We have assurance of eternal life by first of all focusing on Christ and by believing in God's testimony, secondly. And lastly, we must trust in the promise. Verse 11 says that this is the testimony that God gave his, us eternal life, and this life is in his son. So eternal life is a gift, and it is promised. A gift is something that you don't work for. You can't earn a gift. And so suppose that you're giving a loved one a gift, and it's a large gift, they can't pay you back for it. It's something that they can't afford, but you want to give them a gift. And they say, I can't accept that. Or if I accept that, I would have to pay you for that. You say, no, this is a gift out of my generosity and love. If they reject it or try to pay you for it, 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 it is no longer a gift. It becomes a loan, it's something you work for, a reward that they can earn. And they would miss the point of receiving your love and generosity. God gives us the gift 
of eternal life through his son. Trust in this promise. Receive this promise. Then in verse 12, John says something that is controversial, and it was every bit as controversial in his day as it is in our day. He says that basically Christianity, this offer of life, is an exclusive claim that it is only through Christ. Verse 12, whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son does not have life. In other words, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to him but through the Father. The gospel can be offensive. It is offensive. It will offend everyone in our culture who does not receive it. It will offend and anger the restless heart of carnal men. But we all know that the only thing that will bring rest to a restless heart is the gospel. And you might be asking why Jesus Why this way? Why is he the only way? Why is it so vital for my eternal life and happiness? Why him and only him? A way of answering that is this. It's because of water and blood. The story of man begins in a garden. And it was a well-watered garden everywhere. Rivers flowed out of it. In the garden there were trees and fruit to bless man and to nourish man. And there was a tree of life. And in partaking of that tree, one would eat and live eternally with God. But there was also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they were commanded, Adam and Eve commanded not to eat of it. And taking of this, what's wrong with good and evil? It was determining what is right in your own eyes. It was rejecting God's command and saying, I can be wise to know good and right apart from God. It's doing what is right in your own eyes. Adam and Eve, they rebel against God. They are exiled from this garden, from the source of life, from the source of living water, life-giving fruit. God places cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way guarding the way to the tree of life. So if you try to get back to this tree on your own merit, you will face the sword. You will die by the sword. You will be burned. And so God exiles them, banishes them, but he doesn't send them away without hope. He gives them a promise. And first, he gives them a promise that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. There will be a redeemer. There will be one who makes things right. And the way back, now it's guarded, but there will be a way And it will come through the seed of the woman. And then God graciously does something else. He clothes Adam and Eve with animal skins. God sheds blood to cover their sin and their shame. They had tried to use fig leaves. But God makes a blood sacrifice. In exile, man would always thirst for something greater. To get back to the garden and to earn that reward of that tree. The book of Ecclesiastes teaches us that God placed eternity in the heart of man and that we will never be satisfied with the pursuits of this life, the pleasures of this life under the sun. And we live a short time. We suffer through pain and toil and then we die in relative obscurity. And yet we were created by God for fellowship with God to glorify him and to enjoy him 
forever. But we rejected God's way, God's truth, and God's life. We choose our own way. We want so badly to determine what is right in our own eyes. Man may reject the creator, but you will face the creator and the wages of sin is death. And then something happened in redemption. And C.S. Lewis calls this the chapter that changed the plot of history. In the fullness of time, God sent his son into the world, the second Adam. The eternal word made flesh and he came to a world that he actually created. And he created all things. And when he created it, there was no sickness, there was no disease, and there was no death. But when he comes to the world in the flesh, there are these things, sickness and death. And Jesus begins to heal the lame and the lepers. He opens blind eyes. Sin had brought suffering and pain into God's world, but Jesus begins doing miracles which restore things to the way that they were, that they were supposed to be. And he seeks the lost to save them, forgive them of their sins. He offers people living water, like the Samaritan woman at the well, water which will quench her thirst forever. And many thirsty sinners are satisfied by Christ, but the Messiah's mission was to get back to the greater garden. It wasn't to simply offer life-giving water, but the blood had to be shed to cover their sin and shame and to cover our sin and our shame. The entirety of redemptive history, from the seed form all the way up to the tree that we are grafted into, the kings, the priests, the prophets, the sacrifices, these all lead us by blood and water to the one who would take us back to that garden, to the greater garden. And so it begins with a garden and it ends in Revelation 22. I'm gonna read verses one through five. The angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding fruit in each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his, servant will worship, his servants will worship him. And they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. And they will need no light of sun or lamp or sun. For the Lord will be their light. And they will reign with him forever. And so in conclusion. Yes, your thirst. That thirst may be quenched. Jesus came by water and blood to cleanse us and to atone for our sin debt. He came to pour himself out to quench our dry and thirsty hearts. He is the life-giving vine. He is the tree of life, the bread of life, the source of living water. He is the way and the truth and the life. And his call to all sinners, to all of us today, is this. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me today... As the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so you may drink of that tree today. You may drink of the water today and have assurance of eternal life by placing your faith 
in Christ. Focus on him. Believe his testimony and trust his promise and you will find assurance of eternal life. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you through Christ Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. We believe in your word and may we grab hold to your precious promise by faith. And if anyone today does not truly believe, if any people haven't truly repented and believed upon you and had fellowship with you, would you call them to repentance and true faith today that they might have peace with you, their thirst quenched, their lives transformed by your spirit. And may we all enjoy assurance today of eternal life by focusing on your son, believing in his word. In Christ's name, amen.